Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. third episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke and I'm joined in the studio today by Kiara. Hello. And Victoria. Hey there. And we're coming to you with the third section of C.S. Lewis's Me Christianity, which we slightly underestimated because it's actually um, a lot longer than we thought. And so we were kind of rushing to read it in two weeks. And yeah, we got it well. Mostly. We mostly got it done. <laughs> yes, got we mostly done. got it done. Yeah, Victoria got it done. She is an excellent and organised person. Luke and I are, well, we've got to work on that. I got it mostly done. We, we Victoria filled in the gaps, mostly. Mostly. This is a mostly episode. Mm. We'll, we'll do our best. We will have to fly over some things. It is rather chunky. It's Dense. very chunky, yes. And I don't think we'd be able to get it done in half an hour. So 29 minutes to go. Let's go. <laughs> Kiara, what is this section about? Um, he's basically just, he, the beginning of the book, he's kind of said, what is, you know, is there a God? Who is this God? And now he's going, okay, we know there's a God. We know what kind of God he is. He's a good, loving God. So how does that affect our behavior? And that's what he's really outlining in this section. And he breaks it down into several different chapters, two of which the chapters have the same title, which was really confusing. Um, and sent two of our members here in the studio into an apoplectic state. Oh come on, that's a bit. That's a bit exaggeration. <laughs> there were two sections of the book that were in, or two chapters. Two rather, chapters of the book entitled, entitled "Faith." Right, um, one right after the other. <laughs> chapters eleven and twelve are both called "Faith." Indeed, yeah. But they do address two different things. So why not title them different? Anyway, <laughs> um, the first, and so he first goes into a big, a kind of spiel on virtue. And what virtue is in the Christian context, and kind of, and like like with most things, he kind of circles out, you know, so not strictly specifically associating with Christianity, and then going into the Christian understanding. Hmm. So he does that. He talks about the cardinal virtues, which was actually one of my favourite little bits, actually, because it talks about the cardinal virtues. And for those who don't know what they are, they are four virtues, and they are according according to C.S. Lewis, they are not referring to Catholic bishops with red hats and red robes. Um, the word cardinal in Latin means hinge. So these are the four virtues on which all other virtues hinge on, and they are prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. So he talks about virtues as a is, is forming who we are for eternity. It's not just about being a good person in this life because we're not made for this life. And virtues are the key, critical thing that prepares for eternity because if you think about it, if you are a, you know, if you are in the habit of telling like little white lies all the time, yeah, you know, it might not be the worst thing in the world to do, but if you're in that habit for 70 years, mm. what about a thousand years later? Mm. How horrendous is that going to be in, you know, 1,000, 2,000? Because your soul is eternal and virtue concerns your souls, not just mm. your body. You mm. express them through your body, but your formation in virtue is critical to eternal existence. And so. And God wants us to be eternally happy. He wants us to be with him and eternally at peace and in his love in heaven. And you can't you can't do that if you are not if you don't practice virtues that align to that to that kind of vision. So, you know, it's kind of reclaiming and reorienting the whole sort of concept of virtue in a very grounded way, actually. And just from a Catholic perspective, I think it's quite interesting how he talks about this notion of 
our own uh, lack of virtue, our own vice is something that can probably stay with us for eternity if we don't get on top of it in this life. And I find that quite interesting because to me that points towards purgatory. That throughout our sins we may be forgiven, but Which we still have Lewis that state. believed in actually. exactly, yeah. And I think that's quite interesting, just from a Catholic perspective. I'm not entirely sure what the entire thought of that is from an Anglican perspective, but I do know that Catholics and possibly Orthodox are quite unique on this concept of purgatory. Um, so yeah, C.S. Lewis was well known for his unusual stance being. A Protestant on his, you know, for saying, I think that I think purgatory should exist, and um, his line of reasoning was, well, our souls deserve purgatory after we die. It's just a logical, you know. He got the logic that the Catholic Church and probably the Orthodox Church too, but don't quote me on that, has held for the last two thousand years, which the Protestant Reformation rejected for various reasons. Um, so he's not a Calvinist. We've established that. <laughs> The other thing, too, which I think he kind of... He gives a really good explanation, actually, of those four virtues and what they are. And um, the one that I liked especially, actually, was temperance, believe it or not. Because at the time... And I found it interesting because, um, you know, my family has some history of alcoholism. And so I've been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous over ver- over the, you know, various generations. And the temperate... this That was really just getting started in this time. The temperance movement was a huge thing with people, you know, abstaining from, you know, alcohol for the rest of their life. And what he says is temperance is, um, is unfortunately one of those words that has changed its meaning. And now it usually means teetotalism. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, but temperance was actually a, a practice of abstaining from all pleasures, not just alcohol, but tra- it was about training your desires to not necessarily be dependent on having them fulfilled and indulged constantly. Yeah. And something I think is a little bit forgotten today too, as a one of the unintended consequences of that of the temperance movement in the early twentieth century is we still have that kind of carrying on now. And yeah, well, it's so yeah, he that... calls it one pe- one great piece of mischief has been done by the modern restriction of the word temperance to the question of drinks. It helps people forget that, that you can be just as intemperate about a lot of things. A man who makes his golf or motorbicycle motor the woman centre of his bridge. life or a woman who devotes her thought, all her thoughts to clothes or bridge or her dog is being just as intemperate. <laughs> Does that remind you of someone? Um, is being just as intemperate as someone who gets drunk every evening. So, you know, I mean, although it is, you know, with the explosion of, I suppose, the, the addictions, you know, there's now an addiction for everything, right? Mm. Um, I think we're kind of re- re-correcting that perception but anyway that was just one interesting little thing that that's I liked. a great segue talking about addictions to everything uh into the next section that we wanted to talk about which was morality and psychoanalysis and what c.s lewis does here is he really uh in the height of freudian psychology and psychoanalysis he tries to look at that there's two different types of reasons why a person may do bad things one of them may be immoral and one of them may be due to a psychological defect. And I think this is quite pertinent today because we try to redefine immorality to either be simply a psychological issue or a non-issue at all. Uh, that there's no middle ground, that someone is either completely normal or psychologically impaired. Anyone who's psychologically sound can't possibly be doing anything immoral. And I think C.S. Lewis uses a great example concerning war uh, to describe this. And Victoria, you're familiar with this? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, we were just reading the page on the three soldiers, and there is one who is, you know, in all ways naturally scared of war, but he is not inhibited by any irrational fear in any case to kind of undertake his role of, you know, helping his country. And then there are these two other soldiers, and they both have these irrational fears. It doesn't go into what they are, but it is inhibiting them in some way to stop them from acting it out fully. He then goes on to say that these two other soldiers, um, through the help of psychoanalysis, are brought back to base with the other soldier in terms of getting rid of that irrational fear. And one of them says, great, I'm free of that irrational fear. I can go on to serve my country. And the second one says, well, that's fantastic. I have no irrational fear. Now I'm going to use my more calm nature or state of being and go hide or go turn in someone or something like that. And that's where it gets into the whole moral ground. Yeah, exactly. So morality deals with someone who is psychologically sound but still chooses to do the bad thing, Mm -hmm. which is possible. And I think today we try to deny that that's even possible, that the only reason why a person could possibly do a bad thing is because of some kind of psychological problem or some kind of experience they had when they were a child or, or something like that. And so I think an example of this that that I like to use that might be a little bit obtuse, but it's a person with, we all know someone, it may be ourselves, with a very short temper, for example. Now, someone may have a short temper naturally. Um, They may simply have just grown up and they may have some kind of problem where they just arc up a lot at people who just walk down the street. They may have some kind of disorder, which may be able to be treated and bring them to a point where they don't necessarily have that short fuse anymore. But they may be a person who does have a short fuse and no psychological problem at all. As as the example in the war suggests, uh, they may be a perfectly healthy and balanced human being, but they then continually choose to walk down the street and want to punch everyone who walks past. And that's the difference there. Uh, and it the- has something to do with what Kiara was talking about, about it's all about the little things and gaining a habit and... Um, so this person with the short fuse would have perhaps just let off at someone when they were like 12 and then continued to think that was reasonable, I suppose. Mm, mm. And then yeah. just leading to that big kind of... Which may have no bearing on any kind of psychological problem at all. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that, yes, of course, psychoanalysis may be quite good at uncovering repressed thoughts or or uncovering parts of one's childhood that may be causing them this way, or giving them treatment for an underlying psychological disorder which may be influencing, say, their hormone imbalance or something like that. But at the same time, there may be people where there's nothing wrong with them and they just have a really bad temper and refuse to treat it through trying to gain virtue oh they refuse to self they refuse to regulate it themselves because that's the way i am and everybody else should just deal with it Mm. and Mm. we'd say that's an inappropriate response why is it inappropriate well because being in a state of anger um for no reason is not healthy Mm. and you know why is it not healthy because it's not virtuous it's a bad habit to get into because i mean you don't want to be exploding at people who don't deserve it Mm. So he goes on now to then talk about how God only... He takes psychoanalysis out. You know, say some people might not be cured. No matter how much psychoanalysis they get, they might not be cured. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter to God. He only judges us on the moral choices we make. So, for example, someone who has an irrational phobia of cats 
who then overcomes his fear to pick up cat to pick up a cat for a good reason is braver and more courageous than and more virtuous than someone who wins a Victoria Cross medal. Yeah. Like that's that's the kind of you know at the end of the that's you know that that's what he really gets into and the diff- the difference between uh, the the uncomfortable middle ground between the two extremes that we see today where everybody is you know if you're psychologically sound you can do no evil and if you do evil you have a psychological problem. Yeah. Like that's the very uncomfortable middle ground. Mm. And to bring <laughs> it back to the example of the the person with the short fuse. I guess someone who does have a very big problem uh, and a natural inclination towards anger and to taking that anger out on people may be, in the Lord's eyes, doing much more good by his very hard efforts to try and fix that problem, but often failing, than the person who has no temper issues at all, but then goes down to the pub and someone looks at him funny and he punches them in the face. Now, that person might not be doing as bad things as the person with the very short fuse, but they're making no effort to try and be virtuous, whereas the person with big problems is making a very good effort to try and be virtuous. And hopefully, by the grace of God, they do that. And so he's kind of saying it doesn't matter what your starting point is in terms of your natural inclinations. It's the effort that matters and it's the effort that counts. So he kind of puts it this way. He says, all your life you are slowly turning to this central thing, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and within itself. You know, to be one kind of creature is heaven, and to the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. Indeed. And that's kind of wrapping all that up there. And at the end of the day, as Christians, it's really about taking up our cross. Each of us has a cross. We can't simply say that my cross is not worth carrying. It's not that big a deal anyway. We all have a cross that we need to carry, whether that be the person with the short fuse, the person who's deathly afraid of cats. If we try to carry our cross to the best of our ability by God's grace. In C.S. Lewis's eyes, that is something that's greatly virtuous and why we should strive for virtue is to be able to carry those crosses that we have. He also he also mentions too, I think the last point, is that it's at the end of the day, grace is, grace is the critical key ingredient here too because for all our efforts, we will fail without, but for the grace of God. You know, he and he does go in. He goes in further along in this section on where the grace of God comes in in all of this, and that is kind of the critical ingredient there, um, because he doesn't say that you know any slight effort to be virtuous is going to get you into heaven. That's not what he's saying, but he is saying that there must be a constant, consistent effort, and it's that effort that shall be judged. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of in a way, he's kind of not buying into the Protestant paradigm is that you make one decision that Jesus Christ is my saviour and you're saved. And that's that. And he's also kind of pushing against the Calvin, you know, the predestination Calvinist, which says God has decided from the beginning of time whether you are saved or not, and there's no effort you can make whatsoever that will change that. So in this way, C.S. Lewis is actually quite an anomaly in the Protestant world at the time. So the fact that he's actually saying this and saying it from a common sense standpoint would have been quite, would have, would have, it's, would have sparked quite a lot of debate actually, and would have been, you know, would have actually, you know, had a, would have been contentious, believe it or not. 
Yeah, he um, um, is as contentious as it is today, but for very different reasons. Yeah, he sort of sums it up with this little quote at the end, um, right at the end of the la- uh, the second chapter on faith. We're just skipping all over the place, but um, he says, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who worketh in you. So that's a good summary of, I guess, you working and God working at the same time. Mm. But he doesn't say it's like two laborers working side by side so that you can individually pick out who's done what. It's more he's within you, so you can't distinguish it. And he said even if you could, the English language wouldn't be able to express it anyway. I think really an overarching theme of all the chapters within this section on on Christian behavior is this idea that there is an ideal that we aim towards, as he'd been talking about in previous sections as well. And just because it's really difficult to try and achieve that ideal doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Um, Just because we don't feel like or we don't naturally have within ourselves um, the seeming ability to achieve that doesn't mean that we should just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, well, it's all too hard. And a good example of this is within, say, for example, love. Uh, He talks about, with charity or love, that love is not simply uh, a nice feeling that we have towards another person. So when we're called to love our neighbor, it's not just about having nice feelings towards the person. It's about attempting to love that person, attempting to will the good for that person. That person might drive us up the wall. They might be the most annoying and frustrating person in the world, but we're still called to love them. They might be our gravest enemy and we are still called to love them now just because i don't have this nice feeling towards them and it may be nearly impossible to have a nice feeling towards them doesn't mean i shouldn't try and that seems to be coming up again and again with all of the virtues that c.s lewis talks about that we have to try and it's a bit of a case of fake it till you make it. And it's actually, and it's a well-known thing. I think a couple of other saints have highlighted this. I couldn't name them for the life of me. But the time when you think, when you're trying to practice a virtue, when you're trying to develop a virtue, the time when you think you are doing the worst job possible is a time of when you're actually doing the best you possibly mm-hmm. could. And he kind of, he doesn't say that here, but that's kind of the implication, the sense that you get from here is that you you got to fake it till you make it. You know, you've got to be courageous, even if you don't feel courageous. Well, actually, he says it a little bit in the uh, the, first, the first chapter of Faith. It was just, it's just a small part, so I forgive you. But he was talking about um, someone who would ask themselves, who's having a bit of problem with their faith, um, who would ask themselves, how would someone who was completely in love with God, completely um, sure of his existence, how would he act towards him and act like that? And I think that was a pretty good amount. Uh, bit so of- simple, yet so difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the nature of all these things. They are really simple. It's like, duh. But at the end of the day, <laughs> they're the hardest things to do because they're simple. And a really important way that he looks at that is in the context of marriage. Um, marriage at this point of time, we're beginning to see the cracks, interestingly. But contraception has just come into why is coming into widespread use the anglican yeah. church in 19 we don't quite have the it. pill yet but we, don't have we the have pill contraception yet. yeah and we seem to be seeing this uh big reaction against the previous victorian approach to sexuality and marriage which is shh don't talk about it yes. can't talk about it cover your ankle <laughs> <laughs> and so it's this kind of violent reaction against that no offense intended victoria <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm wearing a full length skirt. Just to put this in context, that's why it's hilarious. <laughs> and so you have people who have this idea about marriage that is really popular today and has kind of seen the terrible fruits that come out of this idea that if you don't feel like you're in love anymore, if you don't feel the same way that you did when you first met or started the relationship with the person that you're now married to, the marriage must either have been wrong, you married the wrong person, or you need to leave it because it's obvious that marriage is no longer working. He actually says this is the greatest irony because when you make a decision to marry someone, it's usually when you're in love. And when you're feeling in love, you know, all you read any poetry about people who are in love and talking about their beloved and there are all these promises of eternity and, you know, being there for you forever and blah, 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 blah. But he points out he, he points out that they are not actually saying, I am going to feel in love with you forever and ever. Because that's, you may as well say that I'm never going to be hungry again or I'm never going to get a headache because your feelings will come and go. That's just the nature of them. They're feelings. He's, and, he, and he says that, and he doesn't say that they're bad that way. That's just the reality of them. They will come and go. And the po- in the poetry and in the literature about love that we have, you know, that we have, it's, you know, it's a choice. And he does, you know, it's a choice to will it because there are good things for staying in a marriage for good social reasons, like to provide a home for your children, to protect the woman from being, to protect women from just being, you know, picked up and dropped like that's nobody's business. With kids. You know, with kids mm. especially. But uh, he, he talks about this big explosion of love at the beginning, this, this being in love, which he does distinguish from love itself. And he goes into that as being, I suppose, the catalyst to usher in this age of um, a quieter, steadier, more consistent love, the sort of love that one would have for their children, even though this child has just splattered lasagna on the wall or um, anything like that. And he's got this quote and it says, um, being in love, in quotation marks, first moves them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being is in love was the explosion that started it. Mm. And this goes back to really all of the virtues and all of the elements of Christian morality that he talks about. And that is that with every virtue, we're not always going to feel like we have it at that point in time. Just like marriage, we're not always going to feel like we're in love and that we want to continue to be married to the person who I wake up in bed with every single morning. It's the same with all of the virtues. And I think that we can fall into this trap of thinking that the only way we can achieve a virtue is if we already have it within us. It's very paradoxical. And to me, it's a little bit like not wanting to go to the gym because I don't feel fit. You go to the gym to get fit. Regardless of how fit you are when you start (laughs) off with. Exactly, exactly. And that's what virtue is about. It's about building that strength, building that character when we don't have it. The intellect, after all, precedes the will, not the other way around. It's like that smoking ad that they did ages ago, that anti-smoking ad where they were like, you know, willpower is a muscle. You have to exercise, you have to say no in order to build it. I'm going like, whoa, there you go. Theology right there. Virtue (laughs) philosophy. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And helping you get healthier. (laughs) 
But it's something that I think isn't really popular today, is this idea that, indeed, the intellect precedes the will, that willpower is a muscle that's controlled by something else. We like to think, because it's a lot easier, especially at this time of Lent, to think that willpower is something that just controls me. You know, I do something because I feel like doing it, and I just take my handbrake off and roll down the hill... And follow the merry road to crashing into something generally. Yeah, but, you know, I can't help it. That was my willpower. But C.S. Lewis and, in fact, Christian writers and even non-Christian writers down the ages have said, no, we are rational beings. We're not animals. We're not plants. We're not a river flowing down. We are rational beings and we are capable of being able to improve ourselves and control our will and be able to do that Ash Wednesday fast when you're so hungry or keep avoiding chocolate when you just really want chocolate. Oh, I've been there. That is so <laughs> bad. <laughs> or even, and this might seem really extreme, I'm not a coffee drinker, but avoiding that <laughs> coffee in the morning when you are dead but you gave up coffee for Lent. You can apply this to all of the virtues, not just things relating to food, of course. That we as humans are better than that. We are not simply the sum of our thoughts and our feelings and the hormonal processes and the nice oxytocin injection that I get from my brain when I see something I like and I want it. And We're you hug better it. than that. And you hug it too. Oxytocin comes when you hug things and hold them close. <laughs> Don't women get like oxytocin when they eat chocolate? No, it's a very small hit. It's dopamine that you get from chocolate. Dopamine, yeah. no, okay. Oxytocin, I just had oxytocin this nice... is a bonding <laughs> agent. Yeah. Oxytocin is what women get. Like They get a huge rush of it right after they give birth and then when they're breastfeeding and then... It's a bonding agent. chocolate. No, dopamine is when you eat chocolate. <laughs> Dopamine's the um, that same thing that heroin stimulates in your brain. Okay, that's good to know. Well, I just had this funny idea of a woman hugging chocolate. <laughs> Um, so, look, there is a lot more in this chapter. We haven't even covered half of it. Uh, a lot more in this totally section. totally running over time. And, um, you know, we haven't even covered half of it. So I actually recommend in this case that you do some homework and pick it up and have a flick through it because it's easy to read. He, he writes like he's talking to you. And um, he throws some pretty funny stories in there. And yeah, you'll find like it. comparing falling in love to getting measles. Um <laughs> You know, so there's lots of good... No time for that now, no which is unfortunate. No time for that now. So join us next week for the final section, which I believe is... Book four, uh, Beyond Personality, or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. And it's a rather sizable chunk of the book as well, so we won't have any time to rehash stuff we missed in this book, unfortunately. It's a shame. Well, next two weeks is going to be slugging it out with C.S. Lewis. So... Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, I'm glad that you could bear us for three episodes. Hopefully you can do it for another one for the finish of C.S. Lewis and another many, many more as we look for other books. So thank you very much, Kiara. Thank you. And Victoria. It's wonderful, thanks. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Hope you have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.